Welcome to Business Trip, a podcast about psychedelic entrepreneurship. We explore the business models and origin stories of the most interesting companies in psychedelics. I'm Greg Kubin, and my co-host is Matthias Serebrinski. Microdosing is one of the hottest topics in psychedelics. Microdosing is defined as taking a very small amount of a compound like LSD or psilocybin every few days, and the anecdotal benefits include better mood, creativity, and increased focus. But there are still many unanswered questions that remain about microdosing. For example, what's an effective dosing protocol? Is it safe in long-term use? Does it even work? Or is it a placebo effect? In this three-part series, we explore the science, history, and clinical potential of microdosing. We decided to interview leaders within companies, as well as researchers outside of companies, to help us inform our views. In part one, we chat with psychedelic researcher and microdosing pioneer James Fadiman. In part two, we talk with Balaj Segeti, a researcher at Imperial College London who discusses the results of a study that assesses the placebo effect of microdosing. And in part three, we chat with the chief medical officers of two biotech companies in clinical trials for microdosing. This is part one, so we'll start with James Fadiman, who has been studying psychedelics since the 1960s. He's the author of several books, including The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, which is a manual about safe, therapeutic, and sacred journeys. And it includes data from his research going back to the 1960s. He even has his own microdosing protocol called the Fadiman Protocol, which is taking a microdose one day on and two days off. After studying at Harvard, he got his PhD in psychology at Stanford, where he did his dissertation on the effectiveness of LSD-assisted therapy. He went on to co-found the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, which is now called Sophia University. In this conversation, James shares stories and learnings from researching thousands of microdosing reports. He also shares his favorite research methodology called the citizen science method and shares why he prefers it to the clinical trial model used in the pharmaceutical industry. We also discuss how he reconciles the spiritual aspects of psychedelics within the medical model. Jim Fadiman, very excited to have you on the podcast today. Let's start with an introduction of what brought you to the psychedelic space. Well, many, many years ago, before there was a psychedelic space, I had a uh, psilocybin experience in Paris with uh, Richard Alpert, who became Ramdas. And a few months later, I had a profound experience in Menlo Park, where I was a first-year graduate student. There's a musical from First World War that says, how are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? And microdosing changed my worldview enough to stay interested for quite a while. And how would you say it changed your worldview? Um, Well, just imagine you grew up in a dark house with no windows that was situated at the edge of the ocean. And at some point, they pulled the blinds and you found that not only your world was bigger than the house, it was enormously different and it was much more beautiful. And then someone said, would you like to come back in the house and redraw the blinds? And the answer is uh, no. (laughs) 
Getting more specific here, was it the creative elements? Was it emotional? It was really a sense of identity, which is the Jim Fadiman-ness turned out to be a smaller part of the totality. Um, it's a little bit like if you think your, your brain may think it's the really important part of your body, but it's really a very small part of your body. And only when it is in touch with all the rest of your body are you a full human being. And to be a full human being among human beings and among animals and among trees, you have to be much more aware of your actual physiological connection to them, let alone the possibility of, of energetic and communication and all the, the kind of new age words uh, that people have used for since the beginning of civilization when they're describing um, a transcendental experience. And in terms of having that experience and then translating that into the protocol, the, the Fadiman protocol that you developed, can you talk about that transition and really how you ended up with the protocol that you created? It's a kind of a larger question is I just talked about transcendence and changing my worldview and changing my life career. And all of that is high dose psychedelics. And I think it's kind of God's sense of humor I ended up being totally identified with the tiniest, smallest, uh, least exciting way that people have ever invented to use psychedelics. One is aware that one has microdose, but one is just aware as if one is having a really good day or one has been with a beloved friend. Um, if you've been ill, the feeling of recovery uh, is a, a remarkably exciting feeling, but it's, but it's, it's well within the realm of kind of ordinary day-to-day -day life. So microdosing improves everyday life. And for people who have difficult everyday lives, meaning physical or mental difficulties, it also seems to improve a lot of those. Mm -hmm. So it's a totally different world, much more mundane, uh, much simpler and, and much safer. In terms of the studies that you've done, you've collected stories, what seems like from thousands of people anecdotally. And so can you speak to if there's like concrete numbers of how many folks that you've actually researched and some other learnings that you've had from those accounts? When you become visible and go on things like podcasts, people write you their stories or they write you questions. And so that's been one resource the other is a study that Sophia Korb and I did for a couple of years when people would say, I'm interested in microdosing. We would say, here is what we found to be the safest and most efficacious way to do it. And if you're going to do that, uh, would you give us a daily check-in on 20 emotional variables and anything else that comes to mind? And at the end of a month, give us a review. So we have less than 2,000, but more than 1,000 of these. And the first 700 were put onto open science, which means any researcher in the world can look at it. Uh, and then I've been working with other groups that have other repositories of, of reports. There's a, the Microdosing Institute in the Netherlands um, has worked with about 5,000 people. You know, the word anecdote is like a story, but if you have enough stories and they all look the same, it's hard to say that isn't data. Mm -hmm. How do you think about the studies that have shown that the placebo group responds very similarly to the microdosing group? It's really impressive to see those studies and to watch the researchers 
fall into two groups. One is, ha-ha, we have found that the, the maybe 100,000 people who have reported positive results were all wrong. That's one possibility. And the other group of investigators say, you know, I have to look at my study and see why it is that we didn't find the results that, that are out there in the world. What they're measuring very often is, is very simple cognitive tasks or, or simple emotional questions. And they're often using people who've already microdosed or already used high doses and have already done a certain amount of improvement. You know, if you say, well, how fast can you go up this flight of stairs? Someone who is two steps from the top is going to win every race because they don't have much room to get better. And similarly, when you look at the studies, most of the studies um, eliminate anyone with mental condition. And in our research, for example, we found that about of the people who reported treatment-resistant depression, that means they tried a lot of what's out there for depression, both pharmacology and talk and shock therapy, so hardcore depressed. So about 80% of them report a major shift towards being less depressed. That doesn't show up in any of those, those studies you're mentioning because they don't ask, they, they don't allow those people in. It's kind of if you go to the gym and you pick the buffest people and you say, I'm going to give you a new exercise program. And they say, you know, there isn't much more I can do. Take that kind of that flabby fat kid over there and then let's let's see what your program's good for. Mm-hmm. And so in your studies, you were saying that you have looked at those populations of people that have mental health diagnoses. Or I've looked at a number of students, for instance, students say, you know, I was I'm a I'm a B student. However, I've been microdosing and I've been getting better grades. And the reasons I think are I pay attention better, I focus better, I'm able to read things that don't interest me more easily. I even am able to listen to my worst professors. I, when I look at a PowerPoint, I only have to look once. I don't have to keep looking back and forth. And people basically say, the data is my grades are better. In terms of the accounts that you've collected, can you speak to some of the adverse outcomes people have reported? Now, now remember, that's harder to get because people who don't benefit from something stop. Mm. And and. Remember, high doses, it's one giant dose and pow, that's all they give you, or there may be two. And therefore, it's pretty easy to measure if anything, you know, if something bad happened. If you're microdosing and a number of people say, you know, I'm microdosing and nothing's happening. Guess what? They stop. They also don't respond to your request because they've got nothing to say. Now, the question of people who've had a bad experience, again, because you're taking a tiny bit every couple of days, some people with psilocybin mushrooms will report some nausea. It's just not from the psilocybin, it's the rest of the mushroom. And they stop. So a certain percentage of people who take microdoses of psilocybin have nausea. But it's not much information. Mm-hmm. I really beg my, uh, my kind of outlying groups for any negative reports. So I'll give you one because we finally got one that, that proves out. A number of people in Holland taking legal mushrooms report tinnitus. Tinnitus is a ringing in the ears, and it's a constant ringing in the ears, and it's pretty awful. They report that people microdosing, some of them, reported having tinnitus while microdosing, and it's stopping when they stop microdosing. 
People who already had tinnitus reported it was worse, but it also resolved back to their former level. So that's a very negative uh, outcome, but not a serious one. How about anything heart-related? You know, there's the research around the activation of the 5-HT2B receptor and there being a potential linkage to cardiac issues. See, that's a little tricky. And what they say, this is a very rare heart condition. So far, of the, of the 30 million people in the United States who've used high doses, just of LSD, in the last 30, 40 years, zero reports that substances that are talked about in that research are not the psychedelics. There are other substances mm-hmm. that are taken in vastly higher doses. It's kind of like saying, you know, chocolate might be bad for you. In fact, oranges might be bad too because they both have sugar. Mm. In fact, we have proof that people who have a lot of sugar have a real problem. Therefore, there's no science in that. I mean, the one that's most charming recently, it's a really kind of cheerful. He says, this is theoretical evidence. (laughs) And I asked my lawyer friend, what's theoretical evidence? He said, that means there's nothing there. So, So that research is kind of charming and fascinating. And people, you know, ask about it because if there were dangers... We're very eager that people who shouldn't microdose shouldn't microdose. People ask me for decades, you know, should I take LSD? And I say, how do you feel? And they say, well, I'm not sure. And I say, don't take it. And they say, but I haven't told you my reasons yet. I said, if you think there's not, you have a problem with taking it, don't do it. Same thing about, you know, going to Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if I go to Hawaii, there's, you know, there's stinging jellyfish and there's sunburn and, I could get ripped off. Well, don't go. So people who, you know, that's the first group who shouldn't use psychedelics, people who feel that's not a good idea for them. See, this is not, you know, kind of religious on a step stool on the park saying, you know, come to microdosing and be saved. What it is, is from the, from, from our small study, and I mean a couple of thousand is small, and from the large study, which is an informal group on Reddit, there's a subreddit on Reddit with 200,000 people interested in using microdoses. So we get a lot of information. So what we're seeing is it's out there. People are doing it. My job is to collect information, particularly on unusual cases, and to push for safety and efficacy. So unusual cases, Let's let's hear some. Okay, here's my unusual case of the day. A woman who is diabetic has been taking insulin successfully for 14 years, same dose, under medical supervision, decided to microdose, and not for that, but for whatever reason, but noticed that her need for insulin had declined. And after, I think it was after a month of microdosing, she was taking 20% of the insulin that she had been taking. And according to her medical records, her, you know, her blood sugar was, was as stable at 20% as it had been at 100%. That's fascinating. Okay. I'll give you a slightly different one because we have more people in that group. Many women have hard, difficult periods. Okay. And modern uh, medicine until maybe 15, 20 years ago said, well, that's because women are hysterical and they make it all up. Okay, and eventually enough women doctors got into the act. And of course, there's a lot we know about what causes 
emotional and physical pain during your period. We also have a lot of people who've reported to us that since they've been microdosing, their periods are normal. That's fascinating. And it isn't obviously looking at one receptor in the brain. That's kind of childish to assume that something you put into every cell of your body only affects one little receptor in the brain. Now, if all you can measure is receptors in the brain, then you write papers about receptors in the brain. But people don't work that way. So we're really looking at, at, at what is called citizen science. And it's, it's also, there's another term, it's in the technical literature, I love it, it's called real world evidence. And with a pharmaceutical, it's considered the ultimate evidence, which is you spend you know, $100 million in 12 years getting your drug approved. And then you actually give it to people. And sometimes it continues to work. Sometimes it has some horrible side effects that weren't noticed because the people that have horrible side effects were never allowed in any of the research groups. So real world evidence actually is the only, for me, the only defining factual evidence that makes sense because it's not contrived. Laboratory evidence is, in a sense, manicured and polished and selected, very, very high level of selection for any of these studies you read when they're like eight or 12 people. They're highly selected. And as one woman in Canada said, who's a clinician and she's doing one of the depression with high dose studies that are very effective. She said, the problem with these people is they don't look anything like my clients. And I said, what do you mean? They're all, you know, long-term depression. She said, yeah, but that's all they have. And my clients have multiple problems. And that's more like the real world. So it's a problem that the pharmaceutical industry doesn't like to talk about. But for example, we all know and even the companies now admit that maybe with antidepressants, maybe 30% of people get zero benefit. And people who are on antidepressants, if they get off antidepressants, they may endanger themselves. That's a very scary drug. Uh, the nice thing about microdoses, which are taken intermittently, is you're not, you're not overloading the system. You're not stressing it in the same way. You are having cumulative effect, but that looks like from what is called neurogenesis, which is the creation of new, in this case, brain cells or neurons around the body. Neurons, by the way, are not located in the brain. They're located in the body, lots of places. They've only been measured in the brain. One fun fact I like is that the octopus has half as many neurons in its tentacles as it does in its brain. Right. Well, and octopuses um, are... You know, and, and for all we know, they're, they're at least as smart as we are because they can escape from our laboratories and we can't escape from them. <laughs> but the question of how many neurons are in the rest of your body versus your brain is something that when I ask neuroscientists who are busy talking about brain states, I said, have you measured the neurons in the gut? And they look at me like, why did we let you in this room? Feels like there needs to be a new profession of neuron scientists. <laughs> they certainly are not going to call themselves neurotic scientists. <laughs> so if you were to design the perfect trial for determining the efficacy of microdosing, how would you think about it with regards to dosing, protocol, indications? Aside from that being an impossibly hard question, I will answer it. <laughs> because 
there are now what are called microdosing coaches who are doing just that. They're saying, what's the most ideal setup I can do when people come to me and ask for help? And it turns out that coaching, meaning kind of checking in, helping, and and also checking our people who've set an intention. Are they aware that they've had an intention? Are they looking at how it's affecting other parts of their lives? See, for instance, if, if you're taking it for depression, well, depression is almost an abstraction. It's in a kind of emotional gray. But what happens when you're not depressed? Well, do I then get into fights? Uh, then I'm not getting any benefit out of the depression. I'm still making my life not work. But if I come out of my depression and I realize that my job sucks, but I've been so depressed, I was sure I'd never get another one. I quit and get another job. That's a life change. All of that is what you look at. To look at simply um, marking on a scale how depressed you are, it's like if, if you say, how are you to a friend, a real friend, and they say, well, I can tell you about my finger. And you say, well, I wasn't, I was asking about you. And you say, oh, yeah, well, my mother-in-law is coming to town and, and there's something happening and I'm probably going to have to be in Brussels for a week. Uh, and uh, it may be that I have something in my heel and in a year or two, I'm going to need an operation. That's the answer. So what we're looking at, the perfect experiment continually asks the person to check in and tell us how they're doing. If you could speak to how how you believe that, uh, neurologically microdosing is able to create the benefit that it does. Well, let's go to, to neurogenesis because I actually know something, which is there have been a couple of studies with individual neurons, and you can grow neurons in a laboratory. And this was done at University of Davis, and it's in, published in Cell Magazine, which is like incredibly tough science. And what they noticed, imagine a neuron growing, and imagine it has what's called dendrites, little Things come off the center, and those dendrites have little protrusions around. They're more, and the healthier the cell, the more complex the dendrite, the, the whole system. Complexity gives more opportunities for the neuron to connect with other neurons uh, and so forth. So, and you simply look at neurons which have been nourished on whatever neurons eat, plus a micro, micro, micro dose. And these neurons become healthier. They are clearly, obviously, visually uh, larger, more robust, more complex. And so that's at the cellular level. Now, notice that cells don't grow overnight. But if you're microdosing every few days, and every few days there is this um, support for improved neuronal growth, gradually there are more and more neurons of the new neurons coming in that are, are, are more useful to the brain, to the body then is reflected as people finding that their, their health is improving. It doesn't whoosh overnight, but it improves as their system improves. Do you foresee the FDA approving microdosing as a therapeutic at some point? At the moment, the money pouring in to pressure the FDA is almost all for high dose. However, if you're thinking as a business and you say, well, gee, if you have chronic depression, you can take two high-dose sessions in a week and you won't be depressed for a long, long time. Or you could microdose for a couple of months. Now, from a business model, which one would you prefer to invest in? 
So there are companies who are indeed looking at microdosing. In fact, there's a company in Australia now which has a, a phase 2B, and we can talk about what that means, for microdosing for depression. So it is coming along with a number of the companies along with whatever else they're doing because it has two advantages over high doses. It's incredibly low overhead, meaning all of the price is in the substance. Meaning when you uh, say you have a conventional headache and you take a conventional aspirin, that the cost of that is the aspirin. Now, if you had to go and get a prescription for the aspirin, and you had to stand online at the pharmacy and you got it at the pharmacy and it would only be marked up, you know, thousand percent because aspirin is very cheap um, and it, you only could get a week's worth. OK, that's a different business model. So the problem for the FDA is not um, approving of microdosing, but approving that people can use microdosing essentially as an over the counter. And that's really hard for the FDA when the same substance used in high doses needs a lot more overhead. Now, let me give you an example. There's a drug which will, a very, very small amount will kill you. It's called fentanyl, okay? When a policeman busts someone with fentanyl, if a little bit of the powder is onto the policeman's jacket and he does this, he can die. It's really... Now, however, if you go in for many operations in many hospitals and the anesthesiologist says, you know, what I'm giving you is a mixture of boom and, boom and fentanyl. You say, what? And he says, yeah, we'll use fentanyl all the time because it is allowing us to do operations that we never could have done before. So the, the FDA has to deal not only with effect, but also with different effects at different quantities. So fentanyl, which is the major opioid killer at the moment in the United States, every hospital in the United States has it. So it's going to be some interesting times for the FDA because it's a different class of substances. See, one of the rules of the FDA is you can't apply for more than one condition. Now you say, well, that's kind of, isn't that kind of childlike? You know, it's like you can only have one gumdrop and there's six flavors. And the FDA says, well, two flavors is really hard. <laughs> And six flavors, the complexity of interrelationships is beyond uh, what our regulations are set up for. So what the FDA has done, they say, well, we have what are called supplements, stuff that doesn't hurt you much. And we, the only thing we ask of the supplement people is they don't say anything on their labeling of what it's good for. Now, one might say, is that really taking care of people? But that's the way the laws are. So for instance, there are microdose substances which are not schedule one. And there are companies looking at those. And one of them at least is saying, we're looking at putting it out as a supplement. Now, why isn't it on the FDA list is because they didn't know about it. So I want to change gears here and talk about the metaphysical hallmarks of psychedelic experiences and how you think about that reconciling with this more medical approach that companies who are going through the FDA have to take. I can't imagine going to the FDA and saying, I have a substance which brings people closer to God. And they say, what diagnostic category is that? <laughs> okay. And they say, well, it's not a diagnostic category. And they say, well, you're at the wrong office. 
So we're we're at a place where it's a problem, and it's been a problem with psychedelics forever, including ancient history, which is something that affects the physical body and affects people's awareness of what is called the spiritual. Again, don't have a governmental way of handling that. Historically, psychedelics have been usually in the hands of the major religious group who who are kind of in the spiritual business, and they don't think about medical. Mm -hmm. One other question on this topic. I've listened to an interview did where you mentioned that from your experience or understanding, there's a spirit of the mushroom, Mm -hmm. but LSD doesn't have its own spirit. Oh, did I say that on Tim's show? Okay, well, the mushroom spirit, I hope, will forgive me for (laughs) revealing it. What what is generally agreed on by indigenous people with thousand years of experience, it's worth listening, and they say different plants have different spirits. And there are certain plants which are called teacher plants. And one of the things they do is teach you things you need to know because you happen to be a stupid human being. And synthetics, LSD being synthesized from an organic base, but it's basically a synthesis. They don't have a, they don't have a, like an ancestry. They don't have a background. When you go out in the woods and you, you are feeling that these trees are large living systems and that they've been around a lot longer than you have, there's a possibility of thinking they have something, some kind of intelligence. And then when we find out they communicate with other trees, they trade nutrients, they warn each other of dangers, they do have, you know, they do have some information capacities. Synthetics don't, okay? You know, when people say, my, you know, my flowers talk to me, nobody ever says, you know, my plastic soft drink bottle talks to me, okay? (laughs) There seems to be a drop-off in, quote, spirit when you get into things that are not animate. My last question, and if this is an off-limits question understood, but you do seem like a very open human being, are you microdosing on a consistent basis? Is that something that you've kind of integrated into your life? Well, I think the the question at one level is, am I a eunuch writing about sexuality? And the answer is no. (laughs) See, I don't consider myself a very good subject. I'm much older than most of my subjects, and I've had a lot more experiences in life. And so whether I use microdosing or not, turns out not to be, it's fun, but it's not relevant. Thank you so much for joining. And if you have any closing thoughts, um, feel free to share. Well, I think Shulgin, who first looked, who first rediscovered MDMA, said it's your responsibility if you take something into your mouth to know something about what you're doing. Microdosing is the safest, most efficacious way for certain things. High doses, more information. High doses without appropriate support, more information. So it is the responsibility of each of us to to be careful about what we do with our bodies and our minds. And people like me who kind of look like maybe a zealot have to be taken very, very cautiously. I've been a fan of Jim Fadiman's work for years, so I definitely had a bit of a fan moment interviewing him. The enthusiasm he has about microdosing is magnetic. Yet, his microdosing research has been primarily based on anecdotal accounts. So in our next interview, we speak with Balaj Zaghetti, whose team at Imperial College London conducted a placebo-controlled microdosing study. They wanted to see what role the placebo effect has in explaining the benefits of microdosing. 
what were his results? Tune into part two of Business Trip's microdosing series to find out. And in part three, we'll talk to the chief medical officers of two companies that are running microdosing clinical trials. This is Business Trip, a podcast about psychedelic entrepreneurship. If you like this episode, you can help us by subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review. You can tweet at us or find us on the gram at Business Trip FM. And if you're building a company in psychedelics, hit us up. My email is greg at businesstrip.fm. I'm your host, Greg Kubin. Business Trip is created by me and Matthias Sarabrinsky. Producer and editor is Jonathan Davis. Sound design and engineering came from Zach Frank. Our theme music is by Dorian Love, and additional music credits are in the show notes. This is Business Trip. Thanks for tripping with us. We'll see you next time. The one reason that psychedelics are doing quite well at the FDA is the likelihood that a great many employees of the FDA have had personal experience with psychedelics and know they're safe. And know they're safe. And know the FDA. Psychedelics, they're safe. Psychedelics, they're safe. Psychedelics, they're safe. Psychedelics, 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 psychedelics.